Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the 100th episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. Our guest today is none other than the founder and creator of the Making Sense of Islam platform. My husband and father to our three children, Dr. Tare El Gohari, or as I call him, Tare. <laughs> Tare, welcome to the show. Thank you, Farida, for agreeing to do this. So what's going to happen exactly? Okay, so we got an overwhelming number of questions um, via both platforms and email. So I decided to split them up into two categories. There were a lot of questions digging into who you are and your childhood, how you started making sense of Islam. And there were a lot of questions focusing more on uh, Sharia-based questions and Islam-focused. So I split them into two halves. I'm more interested in going and digging into your personal stuff. I love that stuff. And we're going to keep the Islam and Sharia stuff for another episode. It's probably going to be 100.5 or 101. Okay, sounds good. Uh, I want to call it 100.5. We'll see. So I'm going to go through them and let's see. Okay, shoot. (laughs) The first one we got was, what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland. Uh, when I grew up in the 80s uh, and or very early 90s, Gaithersburg was a very rural area. I remember when I was a child, I used to hear the roosters in the morning at around Fedger time. I mean, that, they were like actually still farms. And I remember as a boy when my father used to drive me to nursery school, I would see cows along the way. Obviously, now it's completely different and uh, very populated. Uh, I mean, alhamdulillah, my parents uh, are, I would consider conservative Muslims. I remember as a child, we used to pray specifically Maghrib uh, every day uh, before my father used to start to travel extensively. When we would go to school or my mom would drive me to school, me and my younger brother, she would uh, play for us Quran and ask us to recite after her and things like that. So Islam was always a natural part of the way I grew up, Uh, but uh, it was also difficult uh, being a minority. When I grew up, uh, I was born in 79, so when I grew up in in the 80s, I always remember I was the only Muslim in school, the only Muslim in my classroom, the only Muslim in the neighborhood, you know, that kind of thing. And that was a theme of my life until I think I got to college. Uh, So that there was some difficulty in that. But Alhamdulillah, I was always proud. Uh, My parents made me proud of being an Arab, proud of being a Muslim. Uh, And my mom used to always tell me a Muslim is a good Muslim is a good Jew and a good Christian. And that was for up until I got to high school, that was actually my definition. That's what I thought Islam actually meant. And because my mom seeded that idea with me, I always felt my Islam was natural. I didn't feel odd. Even though I was aware of my differences, 
uh, I also felt that there was something natural about our way. There was something natural about my identity. And I became very comfortable with that. And I think, alhamdulillah, that became my strength uh, and, um, and whatnot. I, I would be just very blunt and say, I think my, my childhood was very privileged. My, my parents were both professionals. They provided well for our family. Education was and is a premium uh, for my parents. So my, par my parents spared no expense in our education. Uh, in addition to two other things, three other things. Number one, my father wanted to make sure that we learned how to read the Quran. Uh, he was not concerned with memorization, but he said, I want you, when you're older, you can open the Mus'haf and read, you know, the way I read. Hmm. So we, also, we always had a Quran tutor. And my mom was insistent on learning Arabic. So I remember we used to take permission from our my local school so that I could have an Arabic tutor come to the school after school hours and uh, almost every day. And I, I had Arabic tutors. And the third thing is it was very, very, very important for my parents that I have a tie with, with Egypt. So almost every summer, for as long as I could remember, and when I got into high school, also the winter breaks, I spent all of those in Egypt. So we're talking about two, three months out of the year with the family and, and learning. And, and I'm sure this will come up, but this is how we ended up meeting is on one of these, uh, one of these trips. But uh, that those, those aspects uh, of tying me to the language, to the Quran, and to the, our cultural heritage were very important, also important part of how I grew up. Wow. Oh, I thought you were going to say something else, but. What did you think was, I was going to say? I don't know. Like, how it was your childhood like? I used to walk to school or I rode a bike after school, but that was, I think, more of what they were looking for. So I'm glad okay. you're the one answering, <laughs> not me. <laughs> so the next question comes from uh, someone very dear to my heart, even though I don't know that she wrote it. I'm pretty sure it's her. How did you meet Auntie Farida? And there's one specific girl I'm pretty sure wrote that, and I love her. So, so uh, one thing that I didn't mention, but it's important for this this answer, is that my mother is uh, Saudi Egyptian. Uh, she grew up as a Saudi national in Egypt, and all that means is that all of her siblings uh, reside in Saudi Arabia uh, after they they graduated from college. So all of my aunts and my uncles, on my maternal aunts and uncles, uh, live in Jeddah. We come from an ancient uh, Meccan family. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have ties to the Hejaz. So in the summers, I used to spend some of my summers also in Jeddah, which I know is not like what you do in the summer, but that's what happened with me. And I remember it was one of those trips that me and my younger brother were in Jeddah and my mom asked my aunt to, you know, try to hook me and my brother up with some, you know, kids our age. And my mom, my I'm aunt... I'm sure you didn't mean to use the word hook us up with friends, right? Well, okay. I mean, we were we were teenagers, age, so that's not what very I mean. Very <laughs> innocently to another family that had kids. Your good same to know, age yeah. Good to know that spoke English. That spoke English. Yes, thank you. So my aunt uh, was and is a good friend of your mother, okay. uh, and you you know you were born and raised in in Saudi Arabia, even though you're Egyptian. Oh, I know the story. Tell them. So uh, <laughs> we we met. I think it was at a beach resort right outside of Jeddah. Yeah one night oh uh, and me and my younger brother met you and your siblings and you know not to be cheesy but you know there was definitely something there I mean maybe it was love at first sight but we, we were no it was a crush at the time we were 15 and 16 I was, was 1995 wow okay so that's the date you remember yeah of all of the dates you I was 15 day. all right you were 16 and well yes, I, we I, I, I will say I was very interested uh, from the beginning <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think. Well, let's just say too. it took him a good three years to say that he was interested. 
So then began this dance of, of every summer trying to find out where you guys are going to be. Are you going to be in Jeddah? Are you guys going to Cairo? Then you guys moved to Cairo. Like, so it was clear that you guys, you and your siblings were a pull for us uh, for the vacation time. And, you know, when the time was right, uh, yeah, it, it came together. Alhamdulillah. Okay. There were some road bumps, but, but we don't, bumps on the road, but we don't have to get into those. No. <laughs> it's so easy. Uh, how did you originally get interested in pursuing Islam professionally? And how did you know to do that instead of medical school? <laughs> someone really knows you. Like someone's digging deep into like so, early 2000s. <laughs> so, the, well, the medical <laughs> school thing is that I was accepted into a medical school early and a special uh, program at my university at George program. Washington University. It was an early selection program. Uh, humanities-based program that you apply to medical school in your sophomore year, and it allows you to focus on the humanities. And, and that, that's why I ended up studying Islam, because focusing on the humanities, when I went to university, Sayyid Hussein Nasr, uh, you know, famous Islamic scholar, who I, I, had, I didn't even know who he was or that name, he was you know, in his prime, uh, mashallah, and I took all of his classes, just semester after semester after semester. And I was supposed to do that because that was the nature of the program. So by the time I graduated, I had very little capital invested in going to medical school. I did not take the MCATs because that was waived. I had to take very basic, you know, science classes, uh, biology, chemistry, organic chemistry, it's physics, et cetera. So my world, my entire undergrad world from sophomore year to the time I graduated was the study of religion, Islamic studies, etc. And it's just something that's inside me. I don't know the answer to that question other than to say it must be genetic. Uh, my grandfather, my father's father, Allah was uh, an Azhari scholar. He had the Al-Alimiyya, which was the equivalent of the PhD. Uh, on my mother's side, uh, we have uh, people that were imams of the Haram. Uh, so I just think it's genetic. There's just something inside me. I'm extremely inquisitive when it comes to religion. I find it extremely stimulating, extremely exciting. It fulfills very deep needs that I have in a way that nothing else really has fulfilled. And I was always fortunate, I, the last thing I'll say, is to have good teachers. So studying with Sayyid Hussein Nasr, I mean, that was an unbelievable experience. And so that opened my eyes to the possibilities and to the depth of what I was studying. So that excited me. Okay. Uh, and along the way, I just was supported by the right teachers. Well... So I left medical school, obviously. So I think you were trying to tell parents here, don't get your kids into the early selection program if you want them to be doctors. Well, don't uh, talk to me because I mean, <laughs> I, I will definitely end up somehow, you know, persuading you not to go to medical school. Oh, yeah. no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. <laughs> PhD or MD. They're good. They're both good options. But you were asked here specifically what made you pursue Islam professionally. So I'm not sure if they meant studying as in doing getting your master's and phd in islamic studies or professionally as in that you also work with that degree now so my inquisitive nature always i was always what's next i want more i want it to be more authentic mm -hmm. and it was my father i have to give him credit who helped steer me because I had a wild idea. Remember, I wanted oh to go God. to Yemen and I wanted to go to Mauritania. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but we and, needed and something more academic based to Dad said our no. parents he just looked at that me he's not said, crazy. Dad looked at me and said, no, you're not doing that. <laughs> you need to enroll in a graduate program in America. And that's that. That's the only thing I'm going to get behind. And I did that. 
and I used that to my advantage. And mm-hmm. then I, and then that led me to Egypt. And then when I was in Egypt, my sheikh, our sheikh, our teacher, he told me the same thing. He's like, you can't just hang out here. You got to go back and do your PhD. So I think I had the right advice. And that advice forced me to play the system, forced me to get my advanced degrees, alhamdulillah. And then, you know, my teachers and advisors would always say, well, if you're going to get the degree, then you have to do something with it. You have to contribute to the community. So whatever the questioner means by working professionally, I'm trying to give back with what I, you know, I spent I, I almost, I would say, or more than half of my life studying religion mm-hmm. and Islam. So now it's my time to give back and, and, and whether it's through teaching, whether it's through writing. So that's sort of how I see the two related. So the next question, I think, is, um, I'm just going to say it, but I always want to predict his answer because I want to prove I know him so well. In what ways was studying at Al-Azhar Seminary different from studying at Princeton University? But before you say the differences, that's a really good question, whoever asked it. But I would rather first highlight the similarities because I know what you're going to say about that one. I hope you're going to say what, what's in my mind and then tell us the differences. Or I think they, the bottom line is they want to know about both experiences. Since you did Al-Azhar, you did Princeton, they're both very prestigious and they're both very unique and so different. But So I, I went to Azhar before Princeton, so it's important to know that. That's, that's important as it will color my answer. I'll also mm-hmm. say that you studied with me at Al Azhar in the very beginning, yep. and our, our eldest son, uh, Zaid, Zaid was, was a newborn. Was at a the newborn. Time. We used to take him to our classes. I was breastfeeding him during class. He started to crawl at Al Azhar Mosque, and then which we has probably to... increased his immunity at some at some yeah, level. I'm sure it did. <laughs> and then we used to take him in with the car seat when he got it, just to have something to trap him in for a bit. Remember. Uh, I mean, Azhar, so I like your your way of framing it. The, the similarities are b- both institutes are very big on research and digging in deep, using uh, important tools like language. Uh, so both in Princeton and Al Azhar, of course, Al Azhar, you know, you need to know Arabic at a very high level to be able to research, to be able to understand. Uh, so they're serious. They're, it's not it's not like a feel good thing where there are some departments or some universities i don't have to get into names in the u.s or in the west mm-hmm. that are about like the kumbaya experience princeton was not like that princeton was you know very serious old traditional you know scholarship in, in all fields but that was also in my field as well so from that point of view they both you know lit a fire under me that you know oh you think you know what research is no no this is research you have to go deep and deep and deep i remember my my phd advisor when I when I, he, I got my proposal approved, he said, "Okay, basically you need to read everything that there that has ever been written in the history of mankind on your topic." Mm-hmm. That was that was my remit, and and you know that's it sounds easy, but that was very difficult because a lot of what was written are in other languages, in German, uh, Portuguese, Hebrew, French. So I had to find a way to access that stuff. Anyway, uh, some of the differences are Al Azhar. The, the way I liken it is literally without, you know, very, and I mean this truly, it's really like stepping onto platform nine and three quarters and going. Oh, thank God, guys. That's exactly going what to I was Hogwarts. waiting for. I was like, I thought I knew the guy well. He normally goes with the Hogwarts story. Al-Azhar is a world within a world. <laughs> I know you. It's a world within a world in Egypt. Uh, it has its own dress. 
It has its own language. It has its own food. It has its own customs. It has its own jokes. It has its, you know, and, and you're, you're this Azahari dealing with the muggle world around you in, in, in Cairo. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can seem very odd and very antiquated because it is an ancient institute. It's over a thousand years old. And there are traditions that go back that far and beyond. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of that, you are surrounded by this environment. There's a critical mass of scholarship at Al-Azhar that doesn't exist in other Muslim seminaries simply by the sheer volume of teachers and students. So you are surrounded and stimulated at the highest level intellectually with Islam and the culture and it's being reinforced. In addition, because Al-Azhar is a Sunni institute, Tasawwuf, Sufism is, a, is an integral part it's like the glue that holds all of the stuff together. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you'll be in any topic, you know, grammar, mantiq, logic, uh, sarf, philosophy, uh, theology, law, hadith, tafsir, whatever the case may be. And there's something sweet about it. There, it it's always comes back to the heart. It comes back to reforming you. It comes back with the teacher wanting you to be the best version of yourself and wanting you, the best version of you to go back into society and make a difference. That's obviously not at, at Princeton. You know, in Western academia, no one's interested in that. It's about the subject matter and dismantling it. It's this intellectual exercise. Al-Azhar taught me how to be a Muslim, how to practice my Islam, at the same time being very inquisitive, you know, very high standards in research, very high standards in scholarship, etc. Hogwarts minus the magic. Or the Tasawwuf could be the magic. Or the tasawwuf could be. I, I mean, I often tell the kids that you know that my tasbih is like the wand, and I, I mean that. It's... I don't think they buy into that, but yeah. <laughs> okay, next one is a little different. So, tell us more about the Making Sense of Islam project. Is this your project, and what, in, if so, what inspired you to start it? Maybe five, six years ago, I started teaching regularly at the local mosque. Uh, people started asking me questions. And I realized that a lot of the questions that I was receiving were repetitive. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so I think I decided to do the podcast and short videos. Okay. So it started off actually with this podcast. That's why we're at, mashallah, episode 100. And I wanted to oh, put... That's true. Making sense of Islam did start with the podcast. Yeah, that it was, was it was just a podcast. Oh, no, no, I forgot that. Yeah. So I wanted to have Mashallah. things that I could reference. Oh, mm -hmm. you have this question about such and such. Oh, check out episode ten. Oh, you want to know about this? Check out episode three and mm -hmm. four. So it just became an easy way for me to reference, and and I have the equipment, and I just you know sit in my office. It was just audio at the time, and I would just record, and then I started to get a lot of good feedback, uh, and I started to notice that the podcast. Uh, as you see, the podcast is meant to be long form uh, discussion and questions. And I know that a lot of people don't have patience for that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've always been mentioning that to me. So and even now you're getting agitated by my long answers. I can see that. But oh, my God. Did you pick up on that? Yes, I'm like, I did. Wait, no, don't be one of those. Come on, man. Keep it short. <laughs> keep it sweet. So keep to, it, to keep it sweet, friendly. to keep it sweet, I decided <laughs> I decided, well, why don't I build a platform where I can put other things, articles and videos, but most importantly, courses. I wanted to put mm. courses that are pre-recorded that people can access that will help people understand and make sense of Islam the way, you know, I, alhamdulillah, felt that I had along my way tools to make sense of Islam and to improve the quality of our day-to-day -day life based Mashallah. on our Islamic principles. So that's where it came from. Wait, now I actually want to add a question here. 
So when you said about the long-winded answers and stuff, so is that why you, so you wanted a more academic platform if people wanted the longer answers, the articles, the courses? So is that what you mean? It was more intentional for like the knowledge seeker or what, like, what did you mean here? Well, I, I would, I would, re I would rephrase that a little bit. If you, if all you're looking for are quick things, Mm -hmm. this is platform is not is not for you because you can't answer these deep questions with just quick one-liners i mean there's there's only so much you can reduce something so at some point there has to be a level of seriousness so i'm interested in people who are serious about learning about their religion but also serious about improving themselves so this idea of mindfulness wellness is very important for me mm -hmm. most of the mindfulness and wellness tools at least in the english language that are out there are not based on our paradigm. They're based either on a um, uh, Eastern paradigm, whether it's like some form of Buddhism or some, in some cases, Hinduism, uh, or they're just like overtly Christian, which is fine. And I've attended some of these things or they're secular. But if you're a Muslim, at the end of the day, you need somebody that like, if you're a practicing Muslim and you, mm -hmm. you're, you're okay with that, you need, you need somebody to help you answer those wellness stuff based on your islam yeah. as well you it's know kind of linking both worlds yeah i want the i want to improve my lifestyle i want to work on myself i want to be a better person but i want to do it from an islamic perspective an islamic paradigm i don't want my worlds to be always world apart you kind of help is that what you're trying to say in yeah combining both so people yes and and uh -huh. yes and when we read like the hadith for example we forget that, that there's an inflection in the way that the Prophet talked. Like this hadith, is he joking with his wife? Or is he yelling at his wife? Or is he warning his wife? We don't read it like that. We read it as like a dry matter, just like a dry like legal text. But it's not like that. This was a man who was alive and a man who, who, who had feelings and a man who had a family. So you, those little things need to be brought out. And that's what we were taught at Azhar. I mean, that's, what, that's how we were taught to read. And that's why language is important and all of that. But I don't want to burden you all with that. Mm -hmm. I want to help jumpstart that. So, for example, if we have a course on relationships, for example, I want to show you some techniques and tactics of improving a relationship with your spouse. Uh, but also want to back it with some of the hadith. You'd be surprised with some of the hadith that I would cite because you would never think that that hadith is about relationships mm -hmm. because you've never thought of looking at the human element of it or how the prophet Sasam spoke to his wife or something like that. So it's for the serious person, but it's also, this is not like a seminary. I'm not trying to create, if you want to learn Islam like that, you got to go sit on the floor the way we did and you got to learn. That's the only way you're going to learn it. But this is about Islamic literacy, I would say, getting people more familiar with their deen and having their deen be an active part in improving their secular life their relationships, their family life, their mm. work life, etc. Okay, fair. Um, aside from Sheikh Ali Gomar and Sheikh Osam Al Azhari, which teacher or teachers in Egypt had the most profound impact on you as a student, and how or why? I'm not sure why they're only limiting it to Egypt. Maybe they don't know you well. I mean, the first two, Sheikh Ali Gomar or Sheikh and of course Sheikh Osama, are in Egypt. And from Egypt, but I mean, feel free to move beyond Egypt. This is just, well, in, I tried not to change the questions. They're exactly how they okay. were sent, but I'm changing them as I'm reading them. 
So uh, at Al-Azhar, I also studied, I mean, the people that I'm going to mention might not be known, but I mean, I studied with uh, Sheikh Amr al-Wardani. Uh, I studied with him law and uh, spent a lot of time with him and, and continue to spend a lot of time with him. He's also a mufti at Dar al-Ifta, the National Fatwa Office. I also studied, um, you know, Allah Rahmu. Yeah, may Allah have mercy Allah on him. Uh, Sheikh Ahmed Ifat, who unfortunately was assassinated uh, during the revolution in Egypt. Uh, and Sheikh Ahmed actually had, had a tremendous impact on me for a couple of reasons. First of all, he was a, he was a beautiful human being. Mm. And um, anyone who spent time with him uh, knew that this was a man of beauty. Uh, but to show you the depth of his scholarship, he used to teach me fiqh uh, we, or teach us fiqh, mm. Islamic law, which is, you know, a very dry subject. But I remember as he was waiting in the, in the schoolhouse in Al-Azhar for the class to start, he would be like on the side listening to people reciting to him Quran in the different qiraat. He, he knew the 10 qiraat and that was like a side project. I'm like, my, my mind was like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. And then he would sit down and he would teach and number two is that he was extremely consistent, uh, which unfortunately, as, as we know, many of the ulama are not consistent. But, you know, every day he was in the azhar at the, you know, eight in the morning or whenever, seven in the morning, teaching the class. He was extremely consistent. And one of the books that I translated, Responding from the Tradition, which is a collection of, I co-translated with a friend of mine, Nuri Friedlander. Uh, Sheikh Ahmed was essential for me. There were many problems in the Arabic text, so he helped me unlock those. So I spent hours, tens and tens of hours with him. Uh, Allah Rahmu Sheikh Abdullah Rabia, uh, who taught me Usul al Fiqh, he has since passed away. Oh, Rahimahullah. He was, he was a hilarious uh, teacher. Oh, I studied with other teachers, uh, Nahu, uh, Sheikh Hisham Ghunim, who's, you know, no one really knows his name, but he used to come to my He taught me Nahu and, uh, and Sarf, uh, Nahu and uh, Mantiq. Uh, I also studied Mantiq with Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Al Azhar, Dr. Ahmed Al Tayyib. Mm -hmm. uh, Allah Ta'ala preserve him. Our first Sheikh, Nazir Zubaydi, one on one Fiqh before we did the bigger text. Fiqh? Fiqh? Oh, Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Muhammad Shagul. Uh, yeah, oh yeah he taught us Fiqh and Tasawwuf. Yeah, he was really uh, And of course, before that, we, we have to mention that we both studied with Imam, Imam Zayd, uh, who, alhamdulillah, I'm very fortunate to have interviewed him on the podcast. Uh, yeah. We'll make sure that's in the episode notes. Uh, and actually, our eldest son is named Zaid after Imam after Zaid. Imam Zaid. Uh, and then we spent time with Sheikh Mustafa Turkmeni in Damascus. Imam Zaid's Sheikh who's in, Imam Syria. Sheikh in Syria. Uh, and so on and so forth. Sheikh so, Salik from Mauritania. Sheikh Salik we in Mauritania. And, uh, yeah. Stayed at Mona's and Kelly's house for a bit. And that was pre Azhar. That was pre Azhar. I was pregnant then, actually. Yeah, he used to. I, can I say what he used to call you? No, I don't remember. Farid al Majluna. He did? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did I not know Arabic? <laughs> what? That's literally the crazy Farid. I think he meant it in a good way. He did. You know, I do have an. I do have a crazy side. So, <laughs> alhamdulillah, I mean... Uh, I don't remember that, like, uh, at all. Yeah. <laughs> I was pregnant. You were pregnant, yeah. I was very pregnant. I mean, oh, I think wow. I think I wrote it down on in my general ijazah. I don't know the number, oh, but I think maybe about 15 to 20 people Masha that Allah. I've studied Masha with. Allah. Studied, not not just received ijazahs from, that's something different. But you can't, you can't really study at a deep level un unless you, you know, you're going to have to spread out because not one person is not going to teach you everything and some okay. people are busy. So Sheikh Osama, he's just famous, I think. That's why people think of him. And it's funny. I mean, he's still amazing. Mashallah, Sheikh Osama, but, yeah. Sheikh Amr al-Wardani, Sheikh Ahmed Aifat, Allah Rahmo, and Sheikh Abdullah Rabi, all of these people are just a few years older than me. 
So we're like friends, but they're like my teachers. You know, I kiss their yeah. hands when I see them. Mashallah. But they're like Sheikh Osam, I think he's just a year or two older than me. Yeah, but mashallah. But he's, I mean, you know, he's a million degrees a above million me, of degrees. course. Yeah. But we're like buddies, so we can he's also an hang amazing, out. Amazing, amazing man. Sheikh Amr. Really Sheikh Amr, he's come to our house and before. He knows and the kids. Alhamdulillah. So uh, some are some people repeated similar questions, so I'm not going to ask them again. But it was again about Azhar and Princeton. That's why I figured okay. we need to leave that. I mean, you already answered that, but I wanted to tell you that this was a theme that came up a couple times. I think it seems like a lot of people were intrigued between like about both or, anyways. Next one is I need to know whether a person should take every day by day or should a person have a long term outlook. So I think so it's a personal question for a person. I think you need to have a vision of what you want from your life. And that vision has to be big enough that it inspires you and gives you passion to do the things you need to do on a day-to-day -day basis to get it. But that's like secular advice. The Islam part that we add on to that is you have to have tawakkul. You know, you have to put your trust on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is a message for me because, you know, as you know, I'm always... I could accept that. Yeah, you're the sheikh. She's the real sheikh. I'm just like the student. Uh, you have to. It's an inside joke. We have. To, you have to have. <laughs> we don't want to, you know, divulge we'll, too much. Yeah, yeah, we'll pretend to be the perfect couple. Yes, sir, uh, Dr. You, okay, we don't have to go there. Uh, you have to. You have to have tawakkul. And what I mean by that is people understand tawakkul wrong because Egypt is an agrarian uh, society still up till today. Uh, my teachers used to give an agrarian example, which for whatever reason I could understand. And they said, look, the farmer, the farmer's got to do everything in his land possible. Mm -hmm. He's got to fertilize it. He's got to put the seed in. He's got to make sure everything, he does it in the right season. But at the end of the day, he has to say, Ya Rabb, that's tawakkul. You got to go and execute. But at the end of the day, if Allah doesn't want something to happen, it's not going to happen. And you have to be comfortable accepting that sometimes, many times, Allah is telling you, this is a no, don't worry about this. And the way to comfort yourself with that is that I think it's Mike Tyson uh, who said, everyone, uh, oh, sometimes God wrecks your plans because your plans were going to wreck you. Oh, I like that. So when Allah is telling you no, when something doesn't work out, don't think you're a failure. Don't think you're bad. It just means Allah is saving you for something. He's trying to redirect you this way. But you have to have some kind of vision. I want to be a doctor. I want to be an accountant. I want to get married and have a family. I want to open up a business. I want to study the Sharia. Whatever it is, it's got to be big enough and juicy enough that every day you're ready to, to, to hustle and work your tail off to get it. But at the end of the day, Ya Rabb, and inshallah, whatever happens, you accept. Okay. So this one and the next couple... I just felt like it, they kind of fit with the personal. That's why I put them. So they're not like super sharia. Okay. So this was one. And then we have the, from the perspective of a husband, father, or both, what sort of preparations, spiritual, physical, economical, emotional, should a man make before seeking the hand of a woman? What qualities do you think are some of the most important? And then he or she said, Oh, I guess it's from a husband. So he said maybe just a rough outline or checklist that they can go through. I don't know if that's something you want to do on the Well, I, can, I mean, just quickly. Through. And he said, he even said you can title it so you want to get married. <laughs> so like, I think that's like a nice. Okay, so I can do that next. But let me give you just like uh, off the yes, off the top of ahead. my head. You know, we begin with the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 
he addressing men man istata'a minkum alba'a falyatazawwaj whoever of you has alba' and alba' then let them marry and alba' means you got to be prepared you got to be prepared financially meaning and i'm totally against these you know six day marriages and ridiculous mahar and you know i'm totally against all that stuff so when i say that i'm not saying you got to be a millionaire but no. you got to have a job oh six day you meant weddings see what did i say marriages oh, sorry like, weddings sorry not, i'm not talking about temporary marriage no no, no. <laughs> i'm like i meant i meant wedding <laughs> where ceremonies. is he going with that yeah yeah these yeah. cultural so things you're, okay so, so you're you have saying to have, you're against extravagant weddings and making a marriage a burden for men and women i'm so against it so i'm so against it i actually think that a lot of it is haram Okay, no, no, no. Okay, slow down. <laughs> Let's hope he edits that back. So you're against ex- extravagant weddings. So when I say somebody's got a man's got to be financially independent, I'm not saying he can make ends meet. That's that's what pre- we're talking about. Support his wife, a family, or in a family. But more importantly than that, if you're a man and you want to, I think the question is a man, right? Uh, yes. So if you're a man and you want to get married, you have to be ready to sacrifice. And that's what people don't teach us now anymore. When Allah Ta'ala says, When men have a degree over women, Allah is saying men have a degree of responsibility over women. Alhamdulillah. Not a, not a, not a degree of like, I'm better than you. I have, I, I have to sacrifice for you. I have to sacrifice for the children. I have to sacrifice. What does that mean? And that, it's not in a negative way. No, it's not. It's, it's I take pride in that. teaching men to take the responsibility. To take responsibility. But also, we don't want men to get scared and feel this is so overwhelming. We're not going to do it. So, it, well, what I mean by sacrifice, I don't mean you have to throw yourself on the train tracks. What I mean by sacrifice is you have to ensure that the other people in your unit, the family, are taken care of before you take care of yourself. They're happy. They're taken care of. If you're not, if you're selfish, you're not going to be able to do that. If you're looking at marriage of what am I going to get out of it? That's like a business transaction. It's well, not a he's bank. getting out of it a wife and a family, right? So yes, it's not a transaction, but also, I just worry that we scare men a lot that now they're not stepping up and taking. This I think they up. need to be scared because from the the guys that I see that are you know up to the wee hours playing you know PlayStation and stuff like that, I that's that's not. We're not criticizing you guys. He just says I am because some, that's oh my goodness. that's that, that's not somebody. How is that person going to be a husband and father? They can play. They can. I mean, I'm not saying, obviously, I'm being, I'm joking. I'm not saying you can't play these things, but, but you have a responsibility is what I'm trying to say. No, no, fair enough. So marriage is about that responsibility, Mm -hmm. which requires, I think, a little, a little bit of emotional uh, maturity and, and uh, maturity in general. It's not just about finance. Uh, The greatest hadith that we have, which is in Bukhari, the hadith of Umm Zara, which Mm -hmm. is too much to get into now. We say to Aisha alayhi salam, she tells the Prophet, I want to, you know, tell you this story about these 10 women in Jahiliyyah who got together and talked about their husbands. So the, the Prophet sits down with her and she goes from like the first woman who's got like the worst husband ever all the way to Umm Zara, who's the last woman. Mm. And Umm Zara, she's like pr- overpraising her husband, Abu Zara, who does everything for her. He takes care of her needs emotionally, physically, intimately, financially. She's got, you know, this plush life and everyone's happy. And then the Prophet said, I am to you like Abu Zara is to Umm Zara. That hadith is essential because the Prophet, if you look at how Abu Zara's house is, the, the woman in Umm Zara in that hadith, she doesn't do any, she has no responsibilities because all of the things that she needs to do are taken care of by somebody else. That's a high standard, I understand, in our in our dual income world. Absolutely. That's difficult, but that's those are the type of 
We also things. don't want girls to go into marriages and women thinking, I'll be the princess and the queen and I expect you. We do want men to be like Abu Zara, but we want women. When you read the hadith, she was also so sensitive to his emotional needs. Well, that's what I was going to say. When she the, doesn't complain. Her son died. She actually didn't want to wake him up and wait till the morning. Yeah. Like There are a lot of stories behind that. I love that you're emphasizing that, but I always want to find the balance to empower both men and women to take on this big responsibility called marriage and not it is a dual responsibility and if everyone is so sensitive to the other's needs in a positive way i think that kind of balances things out but i i really love that you're using this hadith because that was actually an essential hadith for us that we both listened to like i think a 10 uh, episode series about Shurh of that one hadith, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, before we Shurh got married. Ab- yeah. yeah, I yeah. was just uh, mentioning it to a friend recently. So yeah, it's a beautiful hadith. It is really worth actually going deep into this hadith. I think this should okay, be part so of maybe... your relationship course. I do highly recommend that you go deeper into this using your platform for this gentleman okay. that asked, so you want to get married. So you should use that okay, title for him. So you're both good guys, men and women. Yeah, I'm normally Switzerland here. <laughs> you're more like Kumbaya, but that's okay. <laughs> um, someone said, what are signs of a healthy engagement? Unlike Western culture, where relationships last for years before marriage, I don't think Muslims have the luxury of time and proximity of living arrangements to know if a partner is the right match. That's a really really good question and it's a tough one so there are i think three things come to mind mm-hmm. number one is uh, if possible i think it's important to leverage family connections or friend connections to find out about the other person mm-hmm. so in our in our case for i mean i can speak from some examples i knew about your family from my aunt i knew about your background and uh so it's like you were like a, a verified person, like before I met you. And mm. I think maybe I was also. And verified. we also grew up together. It's very different. Our case is different. But I mean, there's a, there's, there are there are family. It's not like yeah. we met for the first time without any there. There's a previous relationship with mm-hmm. other people that have. And I think that sometimes you can leverage those relationships uh, to learn about other people. The other thing is that I wrote in the article recently about our 20th wedding anniversary, which was recently, alhamdulillah, is I think it's important that couples uh, talk about their first principles, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, what is, what is it that, that, that motivates both of us at the deepest level? If we're aligned, I, I think, alhamdulillah, we're aligned on those things, despite the differences that we have, or, you know, if we ever fight or things like that, or difficulties Fight's with the kids we always find our way back to each other because we have the same principles. So oh. those principles are always going to lead you in the same direction. Mm-hmm. So if you have the same principles as somebody, then you're, then that means you're going in the same, you're, you're going to meet again on the road, down the road anyway. Mm-hmm. It's, I think when people don't have the same principles, like for example, I mean, just let's make up a simple, silly example. One person is concerned about fame. The other person is concerned about just money or wealth. Those are different, like first principles that will mm. will make each person take different steps. The person that wants fame, they're always going to be looking about to the exterior, how they are with people, uh, what can make them more famous, 
Whereas the person that's working is going to be thinking about the budget and the money and spending less and trying to make mm -hmm. more investing, et cetera, et cetera. So they kind of, sometimes they can, they can diverge. So I think having that conversation in the beginning is important. Uh, the third thing is that uh, there's got to be open communication. In the, the questioner saying that the engagement period sometimes is short or there's no previous relationship. So the way you address that is there's got to be talking. You can't just make assumptions all the time. But, you know, I would say, and I wonder if the person asking this question would say the same thing. If you're being introduced to someone for marriage, you're always going to show your best self to the other person. So if you're asked questions, you bet you're gonna, they're going to answer in the best way. And I feel like unless you see this person under pressure and you got to see this person with their family you got to see this person with their friends you got to see this person with your friends with your family and you got to see them in different situations it's not just over text or phone calls or emails and you ask them these questions it sounds very I ideal and you hope everyone is so honest but sometimes i didn't even know certain weaknesses i had until I was presented with certain challenges that we faced together. And then I would know, oh man, I don't do well with this. So I think maybe I would add to your point by just saying maybe, yes, absolutely start with these basic principles, but what do you think about maybe seeing each other in these different social- Well, I mean, of course, if, if, time, if time permits, that's- Oh, I see you, but- If time permits that yeah. that's, you know, going out with your friends or you coming over to my house and seeing my family or going out to this function or, mm -hmm. of course, it, it's mm -hmm. very important because you can only fake the, the ideal answer for so long. At some point, true. at some point, your true self is going to come out. True. You know, like when we go out to dinner, uh, am I going to say, oh, no, I got this. I want to I want to treat you and your family mm. or I'm going to be like, OK, everybody, give me your cards and let's split up the, you know, those little things will indicate something about the character of the person. Mm -hmm. So I, of course, I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. It's a tough one. We, we agree that this is hard and uh, you're right. I think it's like uh, you hope that two people getting to marriage they're they have the same goal. They, they have the same end goal. They're working to say that's what I mean by first goal. principles. Yeah, yeah. And I agree because that means that they're like going to be going down the same path. So they'll Absolutely. always end up meeting on that path. So I love that. Uh, Ah, there's a really good one that I saved to the end. Okay, let me ask this one and then I'm going to go. We're going to end with this. So this person must really know you or you must have talked about this in one of your classes. Okay, I'm saving that one for the last. So one more question and then I'm going to end with the big one. How, so this is a small, how do you recommend one starts to learn the traditional and sacred art of Quranic recitation in the U.S.? Well, the, the Qur'an is a oral transmission before it is a written transmission. Oral meaning you hear it. So you have to study with somebody who knows Tajweed because they're going to be able to hear you recite and say, no, 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 it's, it's not, it's not, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a verse right now. <laughs> of course, now I can't think of a verse. <clears throat> but, Typical, they always have You know, right? is, this, is this letter... Mufakham or murakkak is it is it is it a is it a deep letter or is it a soft letter? Even though it's, you pronounce it, you're pronouncing the letter as the letter. But when it comes to the art of reciting the Quran, no, there's a difference. And of course, there are ten canonical ten qiraat, ten canonical recitations. So you can only study one at a time. You have to learn one. 
and you have to have a teacher that's licensed to do that and they and it's oral so you have to sound you sound it out to them and they they correct you and back and forth so you just find a teacher there are many people that can do it online and uh you know it doesn't actually have to be just in the u.s there are people in other in muslim countries that teach tajweed online as well that you can find easily okay okay so we will wrap it up with this last question with your background and passion i'm telling you this person really knows you you must have mentioned this before no, <laughs> la, la, la. so with your background and passion in opera would you opera? ever yeah oh, okay wow okay. <laughs> i know right someone must really know you that's like again like okay. is that like someone from uh, the good old days uh would you ever be open to writing or contributing to an egyptian opera written in arabic played in classical arabic music slash modes I mean, they, they went in, this is like a whole paragraph. I'm like telling you the basics. They were like, by an Arab orchestra for an Arab audience, opposed to a Western one performed in an Arab opera. So uh, I... Um, And then they said, okay. what if it... <laughs> what would it take for you to perform again? Now, that's an ICCP fundraising idea. And there's a <laughs> wink. I really don't know who sent this, but that's just genius. So the background, I don't know who the question is, but the background is I used to act in high school. Mm -hmm. And much of my acting was also in musicals. So I, I had to learn how to sing. Uh, and I found that uh, I enjoyed singing and acting tremendously. Uh, I mean, I, I, I mean, I would go out as far as to say, Alhamdulillah, I, I think I was actually very good at it. I mean, I could I could make the audience cry. I could make the audience laugh. I, I always got a standing ovation. Um, so there, I'm even smiling because, you know, <laughs> some of my happiest memories. This was actually before we met. Uh -huh. So I don't know. You don't know this well, part. You, you had me watch Fiddler on the Roof. We still have. Yeah, it. I played Tevye on Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. <clears throat> That was interesting, you know, the audience was all my Jewish friends, like parents. And then there was like my little segment of Egyptian Muslims. It was very But you were also playing the Jewish But guy. I was playing the Jewish guy. Yeah. Anyway, that's for another time. So when I got to college, uh, I wanted to act as well. And I tried out for the, the play in college, but the scene was very different. Uh, the, the, the people that were acting, I, I couldn't be in that scene. It was, it was completely un-Islamic. Uh, it was not innocent like it was in high school. And I was going to have to compromise too much of myself to act. So I just said, okay, you know, this is not for me. But I took voice lessons. So mm -hmm. as my elective for my art elective, um, I took voice lessons, I think actually almost for almost for, for two academic years. I think it was four semesters. I had a wonderful one-on-one -on -one teacher, which is actually, when you think about it, very, very privileged to do that. And I, I got to sing, I got to sing opera because I'm, I'm, I'm an opera fan. And um, I'm a fan, of course, of Mozart. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of Mozart for two reasons. One, he's very formative uh, influence on me artistically. But two, he is Shelby Foote's favorite musician. And Shelby Foote is my, my literary hero. Mm -hmm. uh, and as Shelby Foote said, he hung the moon for me. And, and I would say oh. the same as for Mozart, he hung the moon for me. So uh, I, I, I sang some arias from Don Giovanni and uh, Barber of Seville, which is not a Mozart opera. Uh, but... So the answer to the question is, I would love to contribute to the arts because I think that's an important expression, human expression. But uh, I don't think that I am a performer anymore. Uh, I was in London a few years ago uh, having breakfast with the Bishop of London. And in London, you know, there have all these like special clubs like for men, like these gentlemen clubs and not not. So that, that means something bad in America, <laughs> no, sorry. Like, but, uh, but the eating uh, clubs are called, sorry. 
<laughs> so I met him. I met the Bishop of London at this eating club. And it was like very like artsy and like weird. And he's like, you know where we are? And I was like, no. He's like, this is like the Shakespeare club. Oh, wow. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I love Shakespeare. Uh, and he's like, but do you know why I'm a member here? I was like, why? He said, well, because all clergy are failed actors. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, were you happy to hear that? Or I was were you offended. I, I, I was I was happy. <laughs> I mean, I I'm not really a failed say. actor. I was not able to pursue it. I mean, my parents, I think, would have actually killed me, you know, if I did that. <laughs> so I was I, there's no way I could have pursued it. But I think there's I, I think I made some kind of transition in my journey where I am, you know, supposed to be a scholar of religion and this and that i don't think it's appropriate for somebody like me to do that and to, to perform in the performing arts uh, i don't think it's necessarily haram but i just think it's like the etiquette doesn't work but i would love i love the performing arts mm -hmm. and you know I've, I've been telling you the next time we go to london we got to go to the Absolutely. globe theater and this and that i would love to contribute i have no problem with people contributing but i think i've kind of outgrown that mm -hmm. but i do sing around the house you know all the <laughs> time uh, I would love to have a voice coach again to to get my vocal cords back. He needs it. Um, but wait, what about if they do an ICCP fundraiser? Would the imam perform? I mean, I am a performer in in a way because. Were you? No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Would you? The question was specific. You just gave us the background. <clears throat> and now you need to answer more directly. Would you ever? Uh, would you ever uh, perform in a, in an opera in Arabic, written in Arabic? I would not perform. That's I would much. contribute. Okay. Uh, to writing and and you know the the you know mm -hmm. the musical presentation. I mean, I love you, you know I love uh, classical Arabic music. Mm -hmm. I love the oud. I think it's magical. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know how to play it, but I, I definitely respect it. Mm -hmm. But I think I could contribute, but I don't think I could perform. Fair enough. Okay, that wraps up our personal okay. episode and inshallah next uh episode we'll go more into the sharia uh based the dry questions but i did not mean to eliminate any of your questions i just love personal stuff i felt it's an opportunity to kind of you know get into it when we're together uh we really appreciate your time and inshallah next episode we'll go deeper into or he will go into the Sharia and Islamic study stuff. Thank you for watching and listening. Thank you. One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up.